You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 25th day of February 2012. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the broadcast, and for all those who have not yet done so, I exhort you to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous editions of this podcast, as well as interviews and videos and articles that I've created and conducted in the past, and links to some of my other websites, including FukushimaUpdate.com, being updated on a daily basis with all the latest on the nuclear tragedy in Japan. And of course, we are approaching the one-year anniversary of the Fukushima disaster, so I certainly hope people are keeping uh, that in their minds, and there will definitely be more coming out from CorbettReport.com and FukushimaUpdate.com on that tragedy and the one-year anniversary in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. Last week, I asked for listener feedback about ClimateGate.tv and whether it was worth keeping. The consensus from the emails I've received is that it's probably best for me to concentrate my energies on Fukushima Update and on Corbett Report. So ClimateGate.tv will be expiring at the end of this month. No data will actually be lost because all of the data either sources to other great blogs like Climate Depot or What's Up With That or Tom Nelson or Real Science or Climate Audit or any of the other great sites that are out there on this issue and any of the original works that I myself have done, the videos, articles, are all also archived on CorbettReport.com, so nothing will actually be lost to the ether. It will just be the loss of the website, although I will be keeping the domain name, because why not? And also this week I'd like to remind everyone that I am an independent media producer, so I do rely on you out there for supporting the work and keeping this all going. So once again, subscribers to the Corbett Report, people who subscribe for as little as 100 Japanese yen a month, that's $1.50 a month, can become subscribers, can get a a monthly subscriber newsletter that I put out with news analysis and a subscriber-only video and recommended reading and viewing. And also discounts on Corbett Report DVDs. And the upcoming March 1st edition of the newsletter will contain a discount to the brand new Corbett Report 2010 Video Archive DVD, a compilation of the best videos from 2010 from the Corbett Report for the first time on DVD. And uh, subscribers will get a 25% discount. So once again, I hope that uh, people will take advantage of that and become a subscriber if you're not already one. And finally, this week, I'd like to let people know about the ultimate history lesson, A Weekend with John Taylor Gatto. You might remember I had Richard Andrew Grove on the podcast uh, last year to talk about that, to talk about education in general. Well, that uh, interview is now available. It's uh, available for free viewing on YouTube. It's available for free listening through the Peace Revolution podcast. It's also available for purchase on Blu-ray or four DVDs. It's a box set. I certainly hope people will consider doing that to not only support the filmmakers, but to get this in the best quality. And for the uh, uh, for the foreseeable future, there is a coupon code for Corbett Report listeners to get a research bonus pack. It's a $140 value of various materials available for $55 plus shipping and handling. It includes a two-month trial subscription to the Tragedy and Hope online community, a copy of the Ultimate History Lesson on MP3 DVD, a source transcript of the, uh, the documentary, two other DVDs, including 2020 Hindsight Censorship on the Frontline and What You've Been Missing, Exposing the Noble Lie. Again, all of that together, $140 value. It's available for $55 
at the link that I provide either in the links section of CorbettReport.com or I will put a link into the documentation section for today's episode. And just follow that link, enter the coupon code CorbettReport, all one word, and you will get your $55 research bonus pack. I recommend it wholeheartedly and unreservedly. I wouldn't say that if I didn't truly mean it. It is a great resource and a wonderful tool for waking up others and for educating yourself. John Taylor Gatto, one of the giants of our age. So truly, definitely recommended. And on that note, we have a ton of information to go through as always. So let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome to episode 219 of the Corbett Report podcast three debates that will blow your mind. And yes, for those longtime listeners of the Corporate Report podcast who recognize the Blow Your Mind series, including episode 183, five lectures that will blow your mind, and episode 195, five documentaries that will blow your mind, will recognize right away that today we're veering a little bit away from that format, and today we are only going to be featuring three debates. And that is because the debates that we're going to be featuring today are so incredibly interesting and truly it is painful to try to excise a representative excerpt of each of these to try to present them to you in the one hour or so corporate report podcast format that I just simply couldn't possibly cram them down to only eight or nine minutes and try to sneak in five of them. I think today we will be best served by taking a listen to three lengthy excerpts from just absolutely fascinating debates that I think get to the heart of some very interesting matters. And debates can range in so many different ways and so many different forms, and sometimes they can be extremely useful for identifying what parts of what stories we do or don't agree with and why we stand with the facts and assertions that we do, or perhaps sometimes they actually do accomplish the the amazing transformation of getting someone to see something in a different way and really changing their mind on an issue more often than not, they're really just for consolidating our thoughts on various matters because true transformations in one's point of view don't happen very often, as people who are familiar with the theory of cognitive dissonance will be all too familiar. But I, I think it's absolutely fascinating, these three uh, debates that I've picked out today, and we're going to be starting with one that is uh, just an amazing, amazing uh, doc, uh, debate that is over two and a half hours long, the, the full debate, but I could not recommend strongly enough that you go and listen to the entire two and a half hours, and I guarantee it, it is interesting. You will be riveted if you're interested in this. We're going to listen to a debate that took place on December 4th, 1964. It took place at Beverly Hills High School in California, and it was between Mark Lane, the uh, lawyer and the author of Rush to Judgment, and one of the really first people to question what took place on uh, November 22nd, 1963, with the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And Mark Lane squares off against not one, not two, but three defenders of the Warren Commission report, including Warren Commission Council member Joseph Ball. And I'm telling you, this is an incredible debate, not least of which because Mark Lane cleans their clocks in this debate. There is no doubt about it when you listen to this debate, who is the clear winner of it. And Mark Lane wins the debate by demonstrating amply, amply demonstrating that he knows more about the Warren Commission report and what it actually says and what it doesn't say and who it talked to and names and dates and facts than the people who are supposedly defending that report. And I'm sure my listeners don't need to be told what a complete farce the Warren Commission was, 
But it's good to be reminded of exactly why, and even at that early stage in December 1964, Mark Lane was completely on top of it and knew more about the facts than these so-called defenders of the Warren Commission. Absolutely, as I say, an incredible debate, and you will definitely be riveted for the full two and a half hours. So I'll include the link back to the source that I got this from. And originally, the source is back, I believe, to Black Op Radio, an excellent resource uh, specifically on JFK. There's, uh, it covers other things as well, but it tends to focus on JFK and a lot of very interesting interviews conducted by Leno Senek of Black Op Radio. So I hope people will go there and check out some of his other work as well. But as I say, we'll listen to just a 20-minute section of this debate. And I, uh, it, again, it's just so interesting. And this part of this section of the debate comes towards the latter half of the debate when and it starts to really devolve and uh, and the audience starts to get agitated at the fact that although it is Mark Lane squaring off against three opponents and taking them all on single-handedly and cleaning their clocks while he's at it, the, uh, the debate moderator tries to start changing the debate so that uh, the people who are supposed to be, according to the program that was, uh, that was put out for this debate, they're supposed to be cross-examining Mark Lane and asking him questions to try to interrogate his point of view. But instead, they get uh, sick of that because he so thoroughly knows what he's talking about that they just try to sit up there and make speeches about how important the Warren Commission is and how serious all of the Warren Commission members are and therefore the public should just trust them. And it becomes quite uh, ridiculous at a certain point. So this comes at a point when the debate moderator is having to start start to explain, well, we should give these people, uh, these Warren Commission defenders, time to just make their points. And, and Mark Lane doesn't have the chance to respond to them and all of these ridiculous things. So it comes at a very interesting part of this debate. And uh, we'll start with this, uh, this section where Joseph Ball is uh, starting to make his own speech in reference to what's what's been said before. So again, to understand the full context, I exhort you to to go and listen to the full debate. But let's listen to this part where I think it becomes clear even from this section just who is the clear winner in this debate. I'd like to make an observation. Uh, Mr. Lane has referred to something known as the establishment and I don't know what he's talking about. I'm a country lawyer from Long Beach. <laughs> I was asked to go back to Washington a year ago this time and take a job as senior counsel for the Warren Commission. I stayed there, gave up my practice and went back there and handled the job as a lawyer would handle it. And let me tell you something. I never received one bit of instruction or order from any member of the commission, including the chief justice. I never re received an order from Lee Rankin, the counsel. I was given a certain area to investigate and report on, and I did it the same as I do every other lawsuit that I've handled in my practice. Now, I don't know whether Mr. Lane is assaulting my honesty or my integrity when he says that this is a fraud, but it just so happens that the things he's talked to you about tonight were in my field. I had charge of the investigation. I personally examined Dr. Hume at Bethesda, and then Mr. Spector, who worked with me, presented his testimony for the commission. Sidney Wiseman, Mrs. Markham, Howard Brennan, Fraser and Randall. But this was only 
This was only a group of many witnesses that I talked to in Dallas and examined before the commission and took their depositions. I took over a hundred depositions in Dallas from people. I examined everyone who knew anything, who I found out when I got down there, knew anything about this, because I wanted to find out what were the facts. I had no, it didn't make any difference to me whether I discovered that Howard Oswald was the assassin or that someone else was. As I've told many people, it would have been fine if I could have discovered something else because I'd have probably got my name in Time magazine. Now the, so the only thing I wish to assure you of is that everything that I discovered in Dallas, I put down on paper and it's there. And when he talks about these conclusions, I wrote them. I wrote chapter four in which these witnesses are discussed. And when he talks about speculation, I attempted as a lawyer to draw the same inferences from the evidence that I discovered in Dallas that I would from any other lawsuit. Now let me tell you something about the, uh, th this procedure. I was not assisted in the field when I made field investigations or when I brought witnesses to Washington, or when I brought them into an office and examined them, I was not assisted by any FBI agent. I never talked to an FBI agent about, any, about my investigations. In Dallas, I was a, a Secret Service agent drove my car and went out and brought witnesses in for me to talk to. I never talked to a witness in the presence of a Secret Service agent or an FBI agent. I and the group of men that worked with me tried to make this as impartial an investigation as possible. Now, with that forward, I would like to ask Mr. Lane some questions. Mr. Ball, may I point out that you will, and Mr. Lane, will have ten minutes for answer, questions and answers, and we're going to give Mr. Ball a chance to. If there's a question and answer, I want the questions answered. I'm trying to, going to try to bring out facts. I don't want a speech. If a speech is made, I'll make it myself. <laughs> now, Mr. Lane. Let I me. think I think it'll be fair at this point, with limited time left, and one of the panelists not having been heard from us yet, that that the uh, uh, questions be answered without any uh, amplification. Oh, no. I'll just nod yes or no. <laughs> That, that is fine with me. There is such a mass of evidence which Mr. Lane, Mr. Lane has picked out two or three people, like a Mrs. Martin, who was an utter screwball. And he's picked her out and shown the difficulties with her testimony. And I can assure you that there were 12 people who have identified Oswald in in one way or another, in connected with the connection with the uh, the murder of Tippett. Is that a question, sir? Because no. I have a yes or no answer to that. That's not true. There were two persons who yes, said they not. saw the shots fired. Domingo Benavides, who said he could not identify the person, and Mrs. Helen Louise Markham, the only witness produced by the commission, who said she actually saw the shots fired, who said she could identify Oswald. I must ask for more time if Mr. Lane makes a speech. What he has just said is not true. Now, 
Give us All you name. have to do Give is read the, the record. Now, Give us the name of one witness who saw the I, shots fired besides Sc Mrs. Martin. What about Scoggins, the taxi driver? He said he did not the see point. the shots fired, sir. He saw, he saw, uh, well, anyway. Uh, we you did. know that. Mr. Lane makes a technical distinction. Yes, but this man witness... saw Oswald on the sidewalk. He saw him walk to the car. He heard the shots. He saw Oswald flee toward his car, and he identified him. But that doesn't make any. There were twelve people that identified him. But let's identified him not as shooting, as being a block away, two blocks away, a half a block away. Is not the twelve people you're Let talking about? Let me ask some questions first. Do you just answer this? Do you believe the evidence is sufficient to prove that Oswald bought this man liquor carbine from a mail order house in Chicago? Klein store, which advertised it in the February 1963 issue of the American Rifle. Is that the rest of the question? This rifle? Absolutely not. This is the February 1963 issue of the American Rifleman, which the commission speaks about. This well, is the only advertisement put in there by Kleins, and the rifle before the commission is not offered for sale on that issue. Well, and you know that. Well, now, and you know further that Mr. Klein does not believe that the weapon which Oswald had came from his store. And you know further the commission refused to call Klein as a witness. I don't know any such thing. he has said is an utter falsehood. Did the commission call Just Klein? Just a minute now. Let me ask you this. Did the commission call Klein, sir? The test, the... Let me ask this. Where, where, didn't, uh, did, did not, it, was there not found in the files of the Klein store the order for Oswald for this man liquor car? Absolutely not, sir. You know that the only thing Klein's uncovered was an advertisement clipping which had been sent in ordering a different weapon in the first place in the name of A. Hadell and Klein said that he never heard the name of Oswald. He never sent anything to Oswald. Right. And here is the list of witnesses prepared by your commission. Appendix 5, page 491. Does no. the name Klein appear on Don't here as a witness? Don't confuse the issue. Was Klein's... Was Klein's... Wait a minute. Was Klein's man... I've never heard such a major distortion of what is actually a conclusive fact. Now, were there not, was there not found in the Klein files an order for a rifle that was, uh, that was for, and signed A. Hadell that was identified as the handwriting of Hadell. Uh, no, Alaska. sir, it was handprinted. It was not handwritten. Well, and there are experts who've looked at that and said that is not Lee Harvey Oswald's name handwriting. Name one. There are scores name of them, one. but the commission would not hear them. Well, we have what, scores what, of them. Name well, one witness the commission would not hear. One witness the commission would not hear? Yes. In any area? Well, they called you. One witness? No, Mark they, Lane they was would, called before the commission they would and not, gave us a bunch of newspaper clips. That's an outrageous lie because you know the commission called Jean Hill, the Dallas public school teacher, wrote her a letter and said, you have talked to Mr. Lane, and Mr. Lane has said you have this testimony, so we are calling you. Well, you know that you called back Mrs. Markham Spectre. because I told you what she said. I now, you know that's that. true. And I you want to know from the... Mr. Lane, it will result in a cat and dog fight. Let me tell you what the facts are. Well, that's all right. Let me tell you it's what the facts are. time there was a dialogue in America on this question. Now, the facts are this. 
In the Klein Sporting Goods files was found an order signed by an A. Hidel. Not signed, sir. Hand Hand Handwritten. Yes, handwritten. I'll, I'll try. I'll try. Handwritten. An order. There was also a shipping order to A. Hadell to a certain post office box in Dallas. This handwriting, hand printing on this was identified by several handwriting experts, not FBI experts, because we got different experts as the hand as the hand printing of Oswald. The post office box to which it was shipped by Klein was a post office box that was rented by Oswald in his own name. Is this a cross-examination? When Oswald, I can't cross-examine you because right, you don't see, tell the truth. I don't give you the answers uh, you want, that's for sure. Os Oswald... Is this just one long summation, sir? You're here to cross-examine me. Please, please. I only have it. You have a 45-minute opening. You have had questions which you've answered. Mr. Ball has a right to either examine you or make an observation. And you will have time, more time than any one of the panelists. There are three of them. You were not interrupted, sir. There is any of the 45 minutes. And we are not here for one side or the other. No. And both sides have to be heard. Now, please let Mr. Ball make his observation or ask in other words, not only by handwriting, but also by the renting of the box to which this gun was shipped, did they trace the gun to Oswald. Oswald get, went under the name of A. Hedell. That was his alias. When he was arrested, he had in his pocket a forged certificate of uh, registration with his, his picture superimposed upon a document, A. Hedell. His wife said that he went under the name of A. Hedell. In New Orleans, he had gone under the name of A. Hedell. Furthermore, after the, after the assassination, there were three cartridges found on the sixth floor near the southeast window. And there was this gun that we talk about that was found on the sixth floor. Every, every expert, ballistic expert, said that this gun fired those cartridges to the exclusion of any other weapon. There was found a bullet, a whole bullet, and there were found two pieces of bullet. The ballistics experts said that they were fired from this weapon to the exclusion of any other weapon. But Oswald left the, the, the Texas School Book Depository and fled to his home. We know that. He got himself a gun. When he was arrested, he had a gun on him. There, the bullets that were taken from Tippett's body were not mutilated. Some were and some were not, but they were examined by ballistic experts. There were four cartridges uh, uh, cases found in the bushes right near the murder of Tippett. The ballistic experts said that these cartridges were found from this gun that was on Oswald when he was arrested to the exclusion of all other evidence. I'm sorry, but I'll say one thing. One minute, there, were, there were three witnesses who saw t actually saw Tippett murdered, though there was Scoggins had a bush between them is all. There were 
As he fled down the way, there was Ted Calloway and Sam Ginyard that saw him, identified him. There were four other witnesses. He discarded the coat that he had on, which is identified in his coat, on the way as he fled to the Texas to the theater. In other words, all of these facts, I came to the conclusion that I had never seen a case that was so conclusively proven by evidence under oath. We don't take newspaper reports, and what the Dallas chief of police says is Mr. Lane. We didn't take a single bit of evidence into consideration unless it was under oath. not going to say that I am not permitted to answer the questions that were raised. You're not saying that, are you, sir? Well, I'd like to answer them now that they've been made, if I might. Well, that seems adequate. First of all, Mr. Ball takes the position that Mrs. Markham is some kind of a nut. He may be right. What does the commission say? Page 168. Addressing itself solely to the probative value of Mrs. Markham's contemporaneous description of the gunman and her positive identification of Oswald at the police lineup. Remember that? How about the number two man? That was the positive identification they're making reference to. The commission considers her testimony reliable. First they do. She's a nut, said Mr. Ball, but she's a reliable nut because she said Oswald did it. Now we're told that a whole, that a whole bullet was found somewhere. Now, is that whole bullet the bullet which crashed through the president's head and shattered into pieces? Is that whole bullet the bullet which went through the governor, smashed his ribs and ended up in his thigh, a fragment of it? Or is that the whole bullet which struck the curb and smashed into smithereens? Or is that an additional bullet, if it's a whole bullet? It is an additional bullet, obviously. So four shots were fired, and the commission concedes that that weapon is not capable of firing four shots in the six seconds. Perhaps we'll hear about that later. No amount of rhetoric can change hand printing to handwriting. No amount of rhetoric can say that hand printing is uniquely identifiable. This is the February 1963 issue of Klein's, of the American Rifle with Klein's adver advertisement in it. The weapon before the commission is not advertised here. So Oswald could not have ordered from this. The commission should have read the catalog before they so sloppily made that allegation. Or they could have called Mr. Klein down and questioned the way we did. We just called him up and talked to him. He's very friendly, anxious to give testimony, but the commission would not hear him. They'd rather reach the conclusions. They did not want to have their minds caught it up by the facts. <laughs> he received, he received, we're told, the weapon at a post office box addressed to Ahadel and that's a post office box, but the commission is unable to prove that Oswald maintain that box in the name of Ahadell. In fact, the facts are that he did not because the post inspector, Mr. Yo, Mr. Holmes, 
said long before he testified during March of 1963, Oswald maintained the post office box solely in his own name, not in the name of Ahadell. The weapon was not sent to Oswald, it was sent to Ahadell. If that weapon reached Oswald, when sent to the name of Ahadell, if it reached Oswald through that post office box, a federal employee committed a felony because it is contrary to the federal rules and contrary to the law. Now, is it possible that Oswald printed the name Ahadell, sent in this form to Kleins, and the Kleins sent him a rifle they did not even have in stock by mistake? It is possible. I'm willing to concede that. It is possible. They may have had an extra one left over from an old shipment or something like that, which they didn't even know about, and they sent the wrong weapon. It is possible. It's far different from the one before the commission. It's five and a half pounds. The one before the commission is eight pounds. The one advertised here, the closest one is 36 inches long. The one before the commission is 40.2 inches long. It's different in several other identifying areas as well. But it is possible they had one of those. Is it possible that it was sent down to Oswald, the name of Ahadell, and, uh, and some employee made a mistake at the post office and Oswald got it? Of course it is possible. Certainly it is possible. Is it possible that both of those things happened? Somewhat unlikely, but certainly... Yes, 30 seconds. Somewhat unlikely, but certainly it is possible. But these are questions. Are we not entitled to the answers by bringing down Mr. Klein and having him explain? We are, but the commission did not even delve into the area. And that is what has been called by the New York Times the most massive investigation in the history of the world. The fact is where there was a difficult area, the commission did not complete the investigation. It abandoned it. And Mr. Ball says he's willing to stand on the questioning which he conducted of Officer Weitzman. Why didn't you ask him who the railroad man was? He's willing to stand on his questioning of Mrs. Markham. Why, after she said, no, 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 I did not see him there, did she say, was there a number two man there? If he's willing to stand on that question, I know he teaches procedure at law school, University of Southern California. I'd like to have a procedural lesson on why those questions are proper. Well, once again, I trust that that excerpt at least gives the flavor of that two and a half hour debate. Again, quite interesting. And uh, and I think from the audience reaction, even in that clip alone, you can tell who was clearly winning that debate. And uh, certainly the follow up interviews that the people who were recording that debate recorded with some of the uh, debate attendees afterwards absolutely confirmed that and confirmed that the uh, the general consensus of the people in the crowd was that they were outraged at how the so the Warren Commission's so-called defenders had consistently dodged all of Mark Lane's very fine points his his direct questions and his uh, his the points that he made on specific points of fact and they would dance around it at every opportunity just to say how wonderful and serious and and well respected the Warren Commission was and therefore people should believe it and i think it's safe to say that the uh, that 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 was a learning process for everyone at that point and i have absolutely no doubt that the establishment that joseph ball claims to not know the existence of at the beginning of that that clip um it, it certainly was paying attention and so many things uh, have have really evolved from the way that the JFK assassination unfolded. I think that was a, a preliminary, a test, a, a first try at, at putting something so massive over on the public. And, and so many things were developed from that. And I think we've seen that in this day and age where, uh, where we have things like the, the 9-11 Commission report, which in many, many ways is comparable to the, the so-called work of the, uh, the, the Warren Commission. But uh, in the ways that it differs, it's also interesting that instead of 26 volumes that 
that uh, Church basically tried to bewilder people uh, with so much evidence they couldn't possibly look into it for themselves. The uh, the, the 9-11 Commission report made it read, readable and tabloid-esque and, and kind of like a narrative, almost like a novel that you could read from front to back and like a book and and tried to uh, connect with the audience that way and, and basically put all the footnotes in the end where they admitted, oh, you know, such things as, oh, well, we haven't quite figured out where the money for the events came from, but that doesn't matter. And, uh, and also with the 9-11 Commission report, basically the critics of the 9-11 Commission report would never get a fair hearing or a debate with, with actual people who actually s- s- sat on the commission like we saw with the Warren Commission there. Uh, I think they've just uh, basically improved the propaganda and streamlined the process and made sure that, that genuine, serious points of fact and questions about what, who, who knew what when and what happened where and, and things like that would just never be raised in a serious forum. And I think that stems back to things like that debate that we just listened to, where I have absolutely no doubt that uh, members of that establishment, as I say, that Joseph Ball denies the existence of, were certainly taking notes and, uh, and planning for the future. So at any rate, uh, once again, please listen to the full d- debate. You will not be disappointed. But moving from JFK to a completely different realm, but still absolutely no less interesting as a debate, we're going to listen to a debate that took place between Stefan Molyneux of Free Domain Radio and a previous guest of CorbettReport.com, Michael Badnerick, who's known for constitutional work, and he's at ConstitutionPreservation.org. And they had a very interesting debate under the headline, How Much Government is Necessary?, and Stefan Molyneux is taking the anarchist position and Badnerik is taking a, a minarchist or, or libertarian position where some government is necessary. And it is a fascinating debate that goes right to the heart of the matter in a lot of ways. And I think it's particularly interesting. It's not, it's not as much fireworks as, as we heard in that JFK debate, but certainly uh, there are some just very profound issues being debated here. It took place in Philadelphia in July 2009, and once again, I could not recommend strongly enough that you go and listen to the whole thing. In fact, it's uh, it comes in two parts, and two parts together are four hours, but uh, again, I guarantee that uh, anyone out there in the audience who's like me and who thinks that these types of the conversations are fascinating. We'll have no problem sitting through the four hours. Absolutely, so many great points are raised. We're going to listen to a part of the the first part of that debate, and we're going to listen to a response that each uh, Stefan and Michael give to a, a question from a member of the audience as I think this is probably the best short excertable uh, part of the debate. But again, there are so many points raised that I don't think this one part will do justice to it. But just like in that first debate and how Mark Lane absolutely cleaned the clocks of the Warren Commission, I think it's safe to say there is a clear winner of this debate. And in this case, it turns out to be Stefan Molyneux. And I would venture to say that the people who listen to the full debate, even if they are on Michael Badnerick's side and do support him and, and his position, would probably concede that uh, that Stefan ha- seems to come uh, out on top in this debate, if only because in a few different parts of this debate, by- Michael Badnerick basically admits that, yes, a- anarchy would be a- an ideal and and perhaps we can talk about getting there once we get to minarchism. So, so basically, he does 
I think, ultimately concede the point that how much government is necessary? Well, none, really. And uh, and that's really the point of the debate. So I, th- I think it's safe to say Stefan wins. But again, don't take my word for it. That's just my interpretation. Please listen to it for yourself and make your own decision. But, uh, but again, uh, so many important points to be made here. And I think people will understand from my own personal journey on the Corbett Report and the, the information I've been sharing for years, that I'm on my own personal journey to really answer that question as well, how much government is necessary. And it's something that we've talked about briefly in various uh, episodes before. And I think it's going to definitely deserve, if not its own episode in the future, but perhaps several episodes. And we'll have to flesh this out even more. Uh, fundamentally, I think it would be safe to say on my own point that I'm uh, 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 well, I'm, I'm an anarchist in all but name, uh, insofar as I, I cannot find, cannot find one good justifiable reason for government at this point. And uh, basically, I'm looking for it. And I don't think Michael Badnerick really provides it in this debate. But again, I will let you make up your own minds. So we will listen to a little bit of this debate. Once again, Stefan Molyneux of Freedom Main Radio and Michael Badnerick of ConstitutionPreservation.org on the topic, How Much Government is necessary. Uh, next question. Michael, should an individual be able to secede from the government? Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, secession is a topic that comes up uh, frequently with, um, oh, I don't know, 27 states doing Tenth Amendment, uh, you know, proclamations these days. Um, and we were discussing the War of Northern Aggression last night. Um, and there is a mis- widespread misconception in the United States that only Texas has the right to secede. I don't know where that came from, um, maybe because we're just really stubbornly independent in Texas, but anybody, any state has the right to secede. And uh, again, in our conversation recently, uh, somebody tried to suggest that the Civil War proves that states you know, cannot secede. And it's like, so you don't know or either believe in or respect the Declaration of Independence. Oh, well, yeah, that's my favorite document. Well, the Declaration of Independence was a secession document. We seceded from England. And basically the only difference is that presumably we won the American Revolution and, you know, the, the southern states lost, you know, the battle of, you know, for southern independence. Um, you know, you can have an idea, and again, this is an ideological war, and sometimes you have to stand tall and defend your ideas. You may or may not, may or may not win those ideas. But, um, yes, I do believe that philosophically an individual should, I mean, I, I, my parents are both alive. I love my parents, but at my age, I don't ask mom and dad for advice. I talk to them frequently. They don't try to tell me what to do. In fact, Mom bemoans the fact that, oh, Michael, you're just going to do whatever you want to do. Like, yeah, that's pretty much true. Stubbornly independent. So if I'm not going to allow my parents to make decisions about my life, I mean, why on earth would I allow a government to make decisions about my life? That's absolutely ludicrous. So, you know, what we need is uh, a lot more people standing up and being independent and for by whatever method you want to, declaring a secession from the uh, the federal government, and, you know, we just need to have enough of us to make it stick. You know, if I go up against the federal government by myself, I may be very valiant and I may be very courageous, but I'm pretty much, I'm going to end up looking like a pepperoni pizza. Um, we need to have, you know, a majority of people holding these same ideas and defending them. 
um, if Stefan and I are walking through the jungle, I'm, pretty, I'm guessing that Stefan and I both agree that cannibalism is bad. You know, but if Stefan and I, you know, encounter cannibals in, in the, uh, the jungle, you know, I don't think it would be a really good procedure for us to stand in a soapbox and go, well, you know, guys, this cannibalism is really, really bad because we're going to be the first ones in the pot. You know, so you need to have enough people. You have to have a good idea to start with, and you have to have enough people supporting your idea to, to be able to defend it and make it work. And, you know, the Constitution, I think, is a, you know, a really good idea, better than most, not perfect, but right now in the United States, we don't have enough people defending it, and the government is, you know, way out of control. I haven't eaten enough today, because when you start talking about cannibalism, I had this total Bugs Bunny moment. You know, all I did is I looked over and I saw a, a drumstick in a suit, you know, with... with the aromatic, you know, stuff going up there, and you know, you see the fade in and fade out. Anyway, <clears throat> but enough about me. Um, well, should should an individual be able to secede from the government? I think it's very important for us to be precise and accurate in our language. Uh, I'm on a libertarian list forum with Kinsella and Block and a couple other people quite a number of other people, and we got into a very fierce debate under their whole video on this, which, because they couldn't quite understand the concept. Because they're trained in economics and they're trained in political science, um, they're not trained in philosophy, right? And, and so, it was a bit of an educational milestone, because they were saying the government this, the government that, the government the other. Should the government be able to do this? Should the government be able to do the other? And it's like, well, that's like asking, should unicorns be allowed to play soccer? And, and really, that is a very real way of looking at it, because there is no such thing as a government. It is a concept that does not exist, right? We, we all, like, we say, okay, there's a crowd here, right? You all bought your invisible friends, which is great, but there's a crowd here, right? And if you all leave, there's no crowd. Right? You can't take a photograph of a family with nobody in the picture, because it's just a conceptual tank. It doesn't exist in reality. There's no such thing as the government. What there is, is stuff written on paper, some very well-oiled and quick to be pulled guns. There are aircraft carriers, there are buildings, there are flags. Those things all exist. There is no such thing as the government. There are people with guns. There are prisons. There are people who fear for their lives if they cross that government or do not pay its extractions. But there's no such thing as the government. It doesn't exist. So, to me, saying, should I be able to secede from the government, it's like, should I be able to walk out of Middle Earth? It doesn't, it doesn't, it's a meaningless question. Do I have the right to live free of others initiating violence against me? Absolutely. Of course. But do I have the right to secede for the government? It's a meaningless question because it presumes that the government is a conceptual tag with any meaning whatsoever when it's not. It's just a bunch of people with guns. That's all they are. No such thing as a country. Right? There's earth, there's trees, there's air. But there's no such thing as a country. No such thing as a government. I can't secede from it because it doesn't exist. I do reject the right of other people to initiate violence against me. That includes the people who call themselves the government, but I can't secede from that which does not exist. As long as we continue to believe that it does exist, we think that we're obeying something other than people with guns. But that's really all it's about. It's just people with guns. There's no such thing 
and I can't succeed from that which does not exist. It's a good question. I like the way that's phrased. The experiment um, is self-government. For countless centuries, governments across the world were all controlled by a king, an emperor, some monarch. That, and I don't know how we got there, but it was, everything was derived from the concept of the divine right of kings. You know, without going into a lot of detail, God comes down with his magic wand, smacks some guy in the head, and says, you're the king, you own everything. You have all the rights, and you can distribute privileges to your subjects. They owe you their life, they owe you... I mean, you're, unless you can pick both feet up off the ground at the same time, you're standing on my land, and, you know, basically... I own you. And so we came to the North American continent and decided, you know, that's really not a, a really good way. And the Declaration of Independence establishes the idea that we are going to, you know, be blessed with rights, you know, ordained by our Creator. And so instead of, you know, God hitting the king in the head and we get privileges secondhand, now we are sovereign. We are kings and queens. And my book is entitled Good to be King to express that idea. We have 300 million kings and queens in the United States. And we have rights. We don't have, we can own property. We don't have to get our privileges from someone else. And this idea was so unusual, so unorthodox, so, what's the word I'm looking for, revolutionary, that you know, most of the countries around the world goes, oh my God, this isn't going to last. You know, 20 years tops. I mean, it's going to all fall apart. And so, okay, we've got 223 years. It hasn't been, you know, the best of times, but it certainly hasn't been the worst of times either. And by distributing the power, instead of having one person have that power, um, you know, life had been pretty good. Um, the standard of living in the United States has exponentially increased but we lost sight of the concept you know the concept is individual rights and personal responsibility everybody wants their rights you watch the news and you know every every other day you have somebody banging on the podium demanding their rights well if everybody wants their rights how come we're struggling how come we don't have wall-to-wall -wall liberty well, it's because nobody wants the responsibility. You know, you own your body. You're responsible for feeding yourself, you know, sheltering yourself. And, oh, by the way, you are responsible for providing for your own retirement. But our parents and grandparents were lied to. You know, the government says, we're bigger and smarter than you. You give us your Social Security money. And when you're ready to retire, you're going to have more money than you know what to do with. How many times have you heard the conversation, yep, Mom and I are going on vacation again. We just can't spend that Social Security money fast enough. Nobody on Social Security feels secure. And that's because we have given the responsibility of our retirement 
to the government, which is a really, really sad thing. So I think the experiment started out real well, but because we didn't understand that the cost of liberty is eternal vigilance, we didn't we didn't realize that you know the founding fathers didn't set it up to run in perpetual motion. That it's our job, our responsibility to be provide for ourselves and to protect each other's rights and to keep the government small. And because we've allowed it, you know, we've allowed the tiger out of the cage. You know, now we are in trouble. We're trying to figure out figure out how to get it back in the cage. So at this point, the the experiment may be ready to go extinct, which I think is very sad. I think that's the difference. You want to put the tiger back in the cage. I want some tiger skin pants. Um, I think that. Everybody recognized, sorry about that image, everyone. Um, <laughs> would you like to take a moment to <laughs> put your lunch back? Um, I think that every person who studies and, and thinks about these topics recognizes that America was on paper uh, a noble step forward and a great experiment in attempting to create a government by and for the people to protect the rights of citizens, we create uh, this government to secure our liberties. And I think that I certainly believe that it was a great and noble experiment. I can't imagine that the circumstances will be better. Maybe when we go and live on other worlds, you kind of need virgin territory to create a new society because, unfortunately, there are so many people embedded in and dependent upon status, largesse, and handouts from teachers to postal workers to retirees to welfare recipients to military industrial complexes to executives to banks to now car companies, you name it, that you simply can't pry that power out of people using politics. So maybe we'd go to a new country or sorry, a new planet, we could start something new, some new land mass arises, we could colonize it and start something new. But I think there was a really unique set of circumstances that gave rise to the possibility it was a, a, a conjunction of uh, new, new land mass um, the tyrannical governments in, in Europe and other places around the world that caused the best and the brightest to flee, as they always do. And uh, you had uh, the, the peak of the Enlightenment philosophy. You had the printing press, which allowed for the easy dissemination of amazing writings like Thomas Paine's and, and other writers, uh, John Locke and, and all of these great philosophers. So you had an incredible alignment of the planets to create the greatest possibility for statism and let's remember that the American Revolution was still a statist revolution. It was not, let's get rid of government, except for a small little bit that occurred, I think, in Pennsylvania, which Murray Rothbard writes about. But it was a statist experiment. I doubt ever there will be a better set of circumstances to test the theory of statism. But let's look at where it started and where it ended, because there is a bit of a myth. Um, you know, did a lot of studying in, in history, and one of the things that you learn when you study history, especially at the graduate school level, is that the winners, sorry, I'm walking in front of you, <laughs> the winners write the history, the victors write the history. Obviously, if Hitler had won, there would be a whole different set of history about the Second World War. And we do see the American Revolution and the American statist experiment through the lens of, you know, I hate to say it, but rich white landowners. They wrote the Constitution, they wrote the Declaration of Independence, they furthered the laws. I mean, there weren't a lot of uh, black women who were on the federal court system in 1820. 
And we forget, by just looking at this small group of incredibly privileged and brilliant and, I think, mostly honorable men, that there's a lot that's missing from our conception of how America started. I'll give you a small statistic. In the 16th century, the population, the native population of the Americas, North and South America, was estimated at about 24 million souls. By the, 18, by the late 18th century, it was about two, 2 million. Right? That is a greater than 90% reduction. Can we call it genocide? I think at some levels we can because there were bounties put out by the federal government and the local governments that if you killed Indians, you got paid. It was a professional mafia hit jobs of the native population. Was some of it somewhat accidental, smallpox, blankets? Well, yeah, you could argue that it is. But it did start on the whole... Say, America rests on, on the graves of those who were here. And that aspect of things, it also started with slavery. I'll do 30 more seconds if that's all right. It started with slavery, and it started with certain aspects of the genocide. That's where it started. No rights for women, no rights for children. Slavery, genocide, where did it end? The largest, most powerful, most brutal government, particularly overseas that the world has ever seen, the most powerful and brutal empire. And I think we can do better. I don't think we have to stay within that paradigm that we start with genocide and end with empire. But there's another way. Say there's no good answer to the question of government. We need to start asking different questions, which is not what kind of government we have, but why do we need it at all? Now that we have the technology, the communications, the wisdom, the knowledge that we have now, we need to start asking smarter questions, not how do we tame the tiger, but why do we need the tiger? Now, once again, I will say that that is only a tiny section of this much, much larger debate, so it does not present all of the viewpoints and does not answer all of the questions there. Again, that will require its own episode or episodes in the future, and we will get more into this topic in the future, but I do hope that people will use this debate perhaps as a starting point or, or a continuing point for those who are already on this intellectual journey, and uh, I will recommend all of part one and all of part two. Part one is very interesting. Lots of good points raised. Part two, there are good, hard, very interesting questions that go to the heart of each, uh, both Stefan's and Michael's points, and I think really needles both of them, and I think uh, people raise some of the points that really need to be raised. So again, part two, uh, another great part and two-hour part of that, that debate that I think people should invest their time in if they're interested in those types of issues, as I am. And we will leave that there for now, and we will transition on to our third debate. Again, another very interesting conversation. And this time we're going to be listening to a debate that took place on The Real Deal with Jim Fetzer, Jim Fetzer's podcast, between Fetzer and Tom Secker and Nick Collerstrom. And Tom Secker and Nick Collerstrom were talking about 7-7 and what did or didn't take place there or what we know or didn't don't know about what took place there and uh and i would once again recommend the the full debate uh the full 
whole uh, podcast because a lot of great points are raised about 7-7. And of course, people who have heard Tom Secker on this program before know that I hold him in great esteem. He's done some incredible research and made some very good documentaries and made, uh, as uh, listeners to the GRTV interview that I did with him will know, some great points about the dangers of being, quote unquote, conspiracy theorists, as in really theorizing about things that we don't know instead of asking or demanding answers about what uh, the government says it knows. And I think uh, he's made some very salient points on that matter. So we're going to hone in on a specific part of this uh, this wide-ranging conversation about 7-7 and look at a very interesting part of that because as my uh, listeners will know, uh, Peter Power uh, on on 7-7 and, and shortly thereafterwards was on TV uh, multiple times talking about the drills that he was conducting for a company in the, in the, in the city of London uh, that just happened to be uh, envisioning bombs going off at the same times in the same locations. And, uh, and oddly enough, it never, there was no police investigation, or at least none that we know of into that, or there was no, no attempt to, to come to the bottom of that rather startling co- coincidence. And uh, people might be familiar with We Are Change uh, UK uh, following uh, Peter Power trying to, get him some, trying to get him to comment on this, and he goes and hides in a, and locks himself in a, in a closet, basically, to get away from them, and all of the craziness associated with that. And Peter Power came out on, with a blog post uh, years later, later saying trying explaining a little bit more about what that was and saying that there was no conspiracy behind it etc etc and a lot has been made of that as anyone who's followed 77 and the ins and ins and outs of that know that uh, that basically the the chances of a company conducting a drill with the exact same bombs at the exact same times in the exact same locations going off as it was actually happening are are astronomically small so the the point it being that obviously this must have been part of the the exercise and that's that's genu- genuinely and generally the uh, the position that I've taken but Tom Secker actually argues for the, for the other side of uh, on that debate and I think does so in an intelligent way I don't necessarily agree with what he's saying here but I think it is worth listening to again because debates are good at trying to challenge those things that we hold to be true and and uh, challenging our assumptions and making sure that we know all the facts. And, uh, and if we don't, then perhaps we have to relook at them. So once again, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with Tom in this particular clip, but I think he does make some good points and I think they are worth highlighting. So we're going to listen to, again, this part of the Real Deal with Jim Fetzer podcast with Jim Fetzer, Tom Secker, and Nick Collerstrom discussing 7-7 and the Peter Power drills. What's the probability that there's going to be uh, uh, real live explosions at the same tube stations and uh, similar above ground explosion as in Peter Powers, uh, you know, training exercise, which somehow goes live? I mean, I mean, how gullible are we supposed to be? Um, I would say about that. What's the probability? Um, I don't know. What is the probability? Because the thing is, an awful lot of people have put out a probability statistic on this. Yeah. Um, I, I, several I, different I'm people. Of, you I'm, I'm you have, Nick, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, you're one of them. Uh, Tony Gosling's one of them. John Hill is one of them. Alex Jones is one of them. Yet none of them have agreed on the number. No. They all put out 
different numbers. And yeah. yeah, but they're all, wildly, honest, they're all wildly improbable, right? They all make it wildly improbable. I mean, they're different well, assumptions you statist- can make. Statistically improbable things happen all the time. You know, people win the lottery twice. Uh, Tom, listen here. To, to have these three explosions at the same stations at the same time as this uh, exercise is taking place has an I- I- minuscule probability. And, you know, I mean, there, that, we can well, argue it's, this it's, all day long and there's no way to avo- avoid the conclusion. Ah, I think there minuscule. is a way to, to avoid the conclusion that it's a minuscule probability. Because yeah. uh, in this, I mean, Virtually Peter, Peter Power's exercise, in as much as we know anything about Peter Power's exercise, we know it from the man himself. We have yeah. nothing else on this exercise. We have no documents. We have no other witnesses. We have no one else who was involved in it. We have no one from the company that he was running it for or for, from his own company. All we have is a few interviews from Peter Power. Are we agreed on that much? Um, well, not entirely, but uh, uh, largely it came from Peter Power, yeah, about four different um, interviews. But it is fascinating why he would say such a thing, which is clearly, as it's described, an admission contrary to interest. I mean, it's so damning that that should be the case. One wonders why in the world anyone would say such a thing were it not true. And now, if we go on these interviews... On the 7th, the interviews he gave on the, on the day itself, he never yeah. spoke about the exercise having any element of a bus bombing. In fact, he has never said that the exercise involved a bus bombing in any way, shape or form. Right. Okay? Right. He has subsequently explicitly denied that it had any kind of... I mean, whether you yeah. believe that yeah, denial right. or not, right. he has made this denial. Right. He has said it doesn't involve a bus bombing. So, the probability that he would get all of the locations correct is, frankly, irrelevant, because he didn't. Um, he, in his exercise, he predicted King's Cross, Russell Square, and Liverpool Street accurately, as they were locations considered as part of this exercise that were also affected by the explosions. One explosion took place between King's Cross and Russell Square, another one took place between Liverpool Street and Oldgate, and obviously possibly more in, in other stations. Again, nothing to do with Edgware Road or Paddington. Nothing to do with that end of London at all. And we have no evidence that it had anything to do with those. So in reality, the guy got maybe three locations out of seven or eight, correct? Where where, where do you get King's Cross and Liverpool Street from? Uh, from his, well, from statements that he's made and from the, uh, the PowerPoint presentation that he did on the conspiracy files. There's a couple of shots of that where you can see which stations are marked out as ones that they are focusing on in the exercise. And well, furthermore... Yeah, that, that was three years later. Well, what he said at the time was that all three, I thought all three uh, were, were the same. Um, no, he, he said... Suppose we take you three out of four. How many tube stops are there? Uh, tube stations are there in London? A vast number. More, more, so, so, so what's the, the chance, you know, of getting w- w- one of them right out of that number? Just say one station out of the number. How many stations? So that stops? assumes that assumes that each station is equally likely to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm we're just establishing a model here, and then we can tinker with the model. Yeah, okay? and I'm saying if, what, if you're going to say, what is the number of tube stops in, in, in roughly? Two hundred and seventy-five. So suppose one out of two hundred and seventy-five times he did it three times times one out of two hundred and seventy-five times one out of two hundred and seventy-five. But here's the kicker: the time, the time 
the timing, Tom. It's inconceivable you could have this improbable selection of three different tube stops at the right time and have it be by chance. That is just well, let, let phenomenally me improbable. Your, your, first, your first point on this, and that's that it's a 1 in 275 times 1 in 2... Yeah, it's a simplified model. By two, 1 in 273, because you right. can take off one station each time, mathematically. Well. Um, but, of course, King's Cross and Liverpool Street in particular are much more likely to be chosen as terrorist targets than yeah. Arnest Grove or Rice yeah. Hip yeah. or somewhere out on the fringes of London. No one would ever dream of bombing We, we could do it and on hits. the basis of the relative frequency of trains stopping at those stations, and we're going to get different figures, too. Well, and also their centrality and, and their, the degree of disruption that but would Tom, be caused it's taking by place at the same there. time. It's taking place at the same time as this purported <laughs> terrorist I'll, I'll drill. Get to, I'll get, that, get to that in a second. But also, the guy <clears throat> at least says, and again, he is the only source of information we have on this, um, the guy said, you know, we've got, uh, we, we, we did an exercise that actually focused on eight different stations, and three of those had attacks on at the same time as... as, as the well, I think you're alluding to what he came out with, this must be what he said on the conspiracy files. Uh, it's not just what he said on the conspiracy files, it's what he said on various blogs and message boards and things. I, I you remember think, in 2008, eight different stations, and uh, only three of them. I, I don't think that is present in his original statements. What he said it's consistent. Let me just quote his original statement. He said, uh, simultaneous bombs going on, based on, going on precisely at the railway stations where it happened this morning. Yeah, it doesn't exclude the possibility of other stations. There's nothing absolutely contradictory between the two. He could be well, telling the truth. I think you're saying that it's only two of the uh, stations, namely... No, I'm saying it's, no, it's, it's claiming three, three out, out, three out, out of eight. eight locations. He's claiming three out of eight, and I still say the temporal consideration is decisive here. It reduces the <coughs> probability so overwhelmingly dramatically that it should coincide in time. Okay, Not so to let's, mention let's, space. Yeah, let's move on to, I mean, let's, let's this move on is, to that one. Um, these exercises are run quite frequently, you know. I mean, in the well, three or four months year, before. Maybe. Well, no, in the three or months before 7-7, you had four different exercises that uh, considered... This, this kind of scenario, this multiple bombings on tubes trade stations scenario. So if you're running them once a month, maybe more often than that, because you're not just, just talking about the exercises we know about, presumably there are others we don't know about, um, then that, that reduces the temporal possibility massively. Because well, that's if, you, if, if you have, you know, if you have 12 <laughs> different attempts to do, to, to do it in a year, then you've got 12 different attempts, not just you, one. You've you got so many minutes in an hour and so many hours in a day, and the, the temporal coincidence yeah, here is just stunning. Tom, Tom, Tom yeah, listen, I, said, I, I respect a lot get of... that specific, Jim. I respect, specific. I respect a lot of what you're saying, but this part of your argument seems to me to be grossly flawed. Grossly flawed. Well, it's not grossly flawed. It's a matter of statistics. It's you're grossly statistic. flawed. <laughs> Stop just repeating that, please, Jim. The point is this. You brought up statistical probability. Yeah. I am saying, statistically, there is not only one possibility out of however many million or billion or quotillion or whatever that this could be the case, because there's more than one chance that they've taken to, to do this. Um, if you like, it's... Are talking about the Peter Power people? 
not because just they're running these drills. Any, anyone running an exercise. My point being, if you've got 500 upturned cups on a table, someone designates one cup in secret, you throw a tennis ball up in the air and it lands in that particular cup, that's statistically very unlikely. If you throw ten balls up in the air and get one of them in the right cup, that's a lot more, you know, statistically likely, because you've got ten balls. You know, it's a yeah, simple but it's still matter. very, it's still very, unli- it's still very unlikely if you want to choose to use that word. Sorry? I say it's still improbable, even with ten balls, when you have so many cups to get one in the right. It's higher it's, than one, of course. It's, it's roughly yeah. ten times more probable than one. There's no doubt about that, but it's not. doesn't make so it highly probable. So exercises once every couple of weeks or once every month, mm. it's a lot more likely that you're going to get them on the same day as yeah, the Except you're assuming facts, not in evidence. You're talking about a... Why don't we assume there are constant terror drills going on all over the city all the time, Then it can't fail to be the case there's a coincidence? And the absurdity of that comparison makes it very clear, Tom, that your argument is not well-founded. I'm not saying that the, the... I'm not talking about exercises that I've just fabricated off the top of my head, Jim. I'm talking about exercises that we know took place. We know them for a fact. This is, I'm not well, inventing uh, well, what, anything. What, 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 what would you say is the... What would you say was the exercise that took place uh, just before then, Tom? What, what are you alluding? Uh, I'm alluding to Operation Hanover, which was a metropolitan police exercise run about a week before 7-7. There was another one around... But bombs going off on three London undergrounds. Well, doesn't that compound the unlikeliness of it being by chance? That they should have three, three bombs on three, tr- three underground trains in the morning the very week before 7-7. Well, no, it's abundantly abundantly clear that that scenario was well considered before 7-7. It appeared in a TV show. It appeared in several exercises. But that was the... It's not, in anything, it increases the probability of an exercise at the same time as a real attack that does that, because that was the scenario that was obviously going around in the year or two before 7-7. Well, it increases only in the sense that the uh, establishment who are putting out these exercises... Have uh, have imagined and preordained what is going to happen. Uh, that is that is the sense in which the well, these repeated terror drills, uncannily similar to what actually took place, uh, increase the probability of it. But I, it, it, I have no doubt this is a psyop aspect of all this. You're trying to create the impression that this is how it's done. So when you actually fake the drill, it goes live and people are killed. You know, the, the, the ordinary citizen will say, well, that's how it's done. We know from earlier cases that's how it's done, and they'll be more willing to accept it. Yeah, I mean, I would reply to Tom that if you're taking into account the panorama program with, with three bombs on the underground and, and one on the... Uh, one above ground and on a main <laughs> London station, uh, with, with Peter Power as the chief, narr- as chief narrator, that increases the unli- unlikely, the un- improbability of it being due to chance. Uh, it, it, it shows a, uh, a, a preordained setup by the government. And likewise, the, the or, exercise of Atlantic it, sh- it shows that Peter Power stole the scenario for his exercise on 7-7 from the panorama show on which he appeared. I mean, all this reminds me of Basic Instinct. You've seen Basic Instinct, I assume. Yeah. <clears throat> Where Sharon Stone sat there in the police interrogation room, and they're saying, you've written a book describing a murder, and then apparently carried out a murder in the exact way that you described it. And she goes, I'd have to be pretty stupid to do that, wouldn't I? It gives you an alibi. It works the other way around, Tom. I mean, you know, it would be a very clever thing to do because then you could argue how stupid you'd be to do it. Yes, you can, but that's my point, is that 
it's all just an argument. You can't prove anything by this. Well, let's say that at every stage the argument is open to either interpretation. Let's say the exercise Atlantic Blue in May of 2005, the very hush hush. Uh, was it April? Okay, April. Yes, okay, April. Very hush hush, but we gather that again bombs went off on three London Underground stations in the morning and they're synchronised with a major international summit. Uh, mm. Doesn't, doesn't that show the establishment doing rehearsals and getting ready for what actually happened? Well, no, because that exercise wasn't being run by the same people who ran the exercise on 7-7. I mean, you'd have, to, you'd have to prove some kind of physical connection between the people running all these exercises and the actual attacks. And, and that's something that, you know... <laughs> There's this, this, this theory out there that's very common in the truth movement and very common in the, if you, you know, the conspiracy theory world, or whatever you want to call it, where exercises are used as a mask or a cover for black ops. Now, I'm not disputing that that can happen, and even maybe I'm, I'm not saying that it, it hasn't happened. I think yeah. it has. But the vast majority of covert ops haven't taken place at the same time as an exercise, and the vast majority of exercises haven't taken place at the same time as, as black ops or, alternatively, real terrorist attacks. So to, okay. to, to equate them in that way, I think, is, I think it, it's, it's massively speculative, really. You're, I think, statistically, it, it, it's not a, a viable theory to uphold. You're, you're aware that on 9-11 uh, that there were as many as 17 anti-terrorist drills that took the American Air Force out of ordinary response. Well, and we're, and we're not just talking about the Air Force there. We're talking about FEMA talking, turning up at the World Trade Center a day beforehand and things good, like good, that. Good, good, Tom, good. No, I'm, not, I'm not disputing at all that there were all these exercises on 9-11 and that they may or may not have been some means of uh, downgrading the defenses or shutting down the defenses or possibly even enabling the attacks. Um, what I'm saying is, just because it happened on 9-11, or at least may have happened on 9-11, doesn't mean we have to view the exercise on 7-7 in the exact same way. Why, okay, why should we let, why let, let me necessarily give, follow? Let me give a quote from Peter Power describing uh, his, his uh, whatever it was he was doing, okay? On the 8th, July the 8th says, Yesterday we were actually in the city working on exercises, not broadcast, when it happened for real. When news bulletins started coming on, people began to say how realistic our exercise was, not realising there was an attack. So, uh, people thought the exercise were realistic when the news reports came in. Well, apparently they were using the uh, fake news broadcasts from that panorama show that sort of predicted this in some ways. Um, so, it, it, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I mean, if you were sat there looking at very, very well-produced fake news broadcasts and then suddenly someone flicks the channel over and you see ostensibly, you know, the same news studio, possibly even with the same newsreader, uh, giving real news bulletins, you might well be confused by that. But, but how does that in any way prove anything about it being, in, it being connected to the attacks, the real attacks? Okay, well, well, what's Peter Power said in Canada on the 10th, the 10th, he, he flew over there for a disaster management conference, and he explained concerning his anti-terror drill, which was just synchronised with the real thing, that his team suddenly had to stop the exercise and go into real time, and it worked very well, although there were a few seconds when the audience didn't realise whether it's real or not.
All right, well, we'll leave that debate at that point. But uh, once again, I don't necessarily agree with Tom on that one, but I certainly think he raised some good points and did make me think about some of my own assumptions when it comes to these types of things, including these drills, which now are, it's become something of a, a, a standard narrative. Whenever there's an event, oh, there must have been a drill. And if there was, that pretty much proves it for some people. And I think it is, uh, it is a valid point to say, well, we must examine it on a case-by-case basis and we must have a better understanding of the statistics involved and the likelihood and all of these things, I think they are absolutely important points to keep in mind. So, And uh, certainly I hope that people will go to listen to the rest of that and, and see uh, uh, Tom Secker's other work at investigatingtheterror.com. Uh, again, just an absolute ton of information and, and a wealth of knowledge there. So I don't. I hope that people won't base their entire uh, assumption of Tom Secker and his work just on that one uh, clip. But uh, but again, I think it is worth keeping in mind. As is all of the information presented today. Again, I think debating and these types of debates are important in order to to for us to understand better our own positions, if not to actually change our own positions when we find ourselves to be in error. Because once again, if we're not interrogating our own assumptions and and aware of our own weaknesses in our argument, then we will. We'll never be able to better our arguments or come to a more refined understanding of the truth. So once again, we've gone through a lot of information today and each and every one of these debates that we've presented today, I really hope you'll go and listen to the full thing because uh, once again, this is just a tiny section of a much, much larger debate in each case. And on that note, we're going to leave it there for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you so much for joining me this week and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report.